Chapter Six of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wolfgang Bass. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. A plea for a new type of play. One. The mind of the artist has often been defined as a magic glass through which we look at nature, a sort of lens which brings a chosen phase of life clearly to a focus within a definitely bounded field of vision. With this definition in mind, I should like to ask the reader, at the outset of the present chapter, to lay the book aside in order to perform a simple experiment in optics. Let him step to the nearest window and look for a moment steadily at the house across the street. He will see this house at a certain distance and in certain degree of detail. And without turning his head, he will also see, though less distinctly, the three or four houses on either side of the one which he is looking at directly. His field of vision is not definitely bounded, but fades off on all sides into a gradually growing dimness. And the aspect of the one house on which his eyes are fixed is entirely natural and not particularly interesting. Let the reader now procure an ordinary pair of opera glasses and bring them to focus on a single window of the house across the street. This window will look much nearer and much larger than before. It will be seen with greater intimacy of detail, and it will appear within a definitely bounded field of vision, composed, as painters say, within a circle that stops the eye from wandering. These three advantages have been derived from looking through a pair of lenses, but it should be noted also that the observer has suffered an attendant disadvantage, namely that he can no longer look at the entire house, but can merely imagine its total aspect by inference from the appearance of that single little circle which has been so marvelously magnified. Lastly, let the reader turn the opera glasses about and look at the house through what we are accustomed to call the wrong end of the instrument. Again, he will observe a field of vision that is definitely bounded by a circle, but this field of vision will embrace immeasurably more than that which was disclosed by the previous experiment. Instead of seeing only a single window, he will now see the entire house and a segment of each of the adjacent houses. And because of the clearness of the picture, he will seem to see even more than he noticed with the naked eye. These points must be counted as advantages. But on the other hand, the house will look much farther away and will be seen with less distinctness of detail. This experiment may help us to an understanding of the processes of art. Looking at the house with the naked eye was like observing life without any intermediary aid, but looking at the house through either end of the opera glasses was like observing life through the medium of the artist's mind. In both cases, the artificial 
or artistic vision was more interesting than the natural or actual. And in either case, the reason was the same, namely, that the picture was composed and framed within limits that required the absolute attention of the eye, by forbidding it for the moment to glance at anything excluded from the field of vision. But a very different sort of interest was added to the aspect of the house, according as the observer looked through one end or the other of the opera glasses. And this difference offers us a basis for distinguishing the two great processes of art. Employed in the more ordinary way, the glasses afforded a nearer view of a smaller field of vision, and turned about in the less ordinary way, they afforded a more distant view of a larger field of vision. Similarly, there is a sort of art that brings us more intimately into touch with life but shows us less of it at a time. And there is another sort of art that removes life to a greater remoteness, but shows us more of it at a time. The first type we may call intensive, and the second extensive. Intensive art proceeds by amplifying the little, and extensive art proceeds by imagining the large. The one magnifies details, the other minifies them. Neither of these processes is absolutely more efficient than the other. Intensive art achieves a finer intimacy of representation, but extensive art achieves a greater range and sweep of treatment. In Venetian painting, for example, the two types may be distinguished in the very different aims and methods of Carpaccio and Tintoretto. Carpaccio is forever asking us to look at some detail of life through a magnifying glass. He is one of the most insinuatingly intimate of artists. He obtrudes a pretty flower or a funny little animal or some wistful fleeting vision of a face to be taken to the heart and loved as, for the moment, the most poignantly interesting object in the world. But Tintoretto has no patience for details. In his great picture of the last judgment in the Madonna dell'Orto, he swirls us headlong through the roaring and illimitable vastitudes of space. Appalled, amid immensity, we have no use for any magnifying glass. We cry out, rather, for minifying glass to render more remote that awful wearing of eternal wings. Carpaccio paints with camel's hair and Tintoretto with a comet's tail. Which is, finally, the better art? The answer depends on what it is that you are looking for. The terms intensive and extensive as applied to art are comparatively unfamiliar, but they seem, to me, more useful for the purposes of criticism than such more familiar terms as realistic and romantic or prosaic and poetic. In nomenclature, as in life, familiarity seems to breed contempt or at least a lack of understanding. A coin, too often passed, loses the clear image of its minting. Such words as realistic and romantic have been so often and so loosely used that they have lost all definite significance to the majority of minds. But the new terms, intensive and extensive, 
point to a dichotomy which should be definite and clear and offer us a sure divining rod for distinguishing the two great processes of art in the light of this distinction let us consider the present status of the great art of the drama we shall observe at once that the theatre in this present period is given over almost utterly to the practice of intensive art although in all preceding periods it had been assumed without question that the proper province of the theatre was the exhibition of extensive art the discovery of this essential difference leads us at once to a central point of view from which we may reasonably investigate the special merits and defects of the drama of to-day in comparison with the dramatic art of the other ages to make this comparison concrete let us set one of the best plays of this microscopic modern age beside a couple of the best plays of the spacious age of the great elizabeth let us compare the structural method pursued by sir arthur pinero in the thunderbolt with that pursued by shakespeare in hamlet and antony and cleopatra the whole story of the thunderbolt is set forth in three rooms and except for the lapse of one month between the first act and the second the action is entirely continuous in other words the narrative is arranged in three distinct pigeonholes of place and two distinct pigeonholes of time but in setting forth the narrative of a hamlet shakespeare employed twenty different pigeonholes of time and place and to produce the panoramic effect of antony and cleopatra he allowed himself no less than forty-two narrative units or as we call them scenes the effect of the modern instance is to magnify details the effect of the elizabethan is to minify and merge them into a general sense of the drums and tramplings of the world and girdling empire the modern work diminishes the natural distance between life and the observer but constricts the limits of the field of vision whereas the work of shakespeare enlarges the limits of the field of vision but removes life to a more than natural remoteness from the eye of the observer the merit of either method is the defect of the other both shakespeare and pinero were asked to cover in the two hours traffic of the stage the same extent of canvas but the latter filled the picture by amplifying the little and the near and the former by imagining the large and the remote two it is difficult to estimate the ultimate importance of any big historical development so long as one is living in the midst of it but it seems safe to assert that by the historians of future ages the last thirty years of the development of the drama will be pointed out as especially important because of the unprecedented triumph in so brief a period of the methods of intensive art this development has been defined very clearly by mr henry arthur jones in the illuminative preface to his lately published play entitled the divine gift 
This essay is so valuable that I shall take the liberty of quoting the following sentences at length. For a long generation, a realistic drama of modern life has practiced an ever-increasing and more severe economy of scene and action and dialogue. It tends to deny itself all trappings and effects, but those of ordinary everyday life. It has become an eavesdropping and photographic reporter, taking snapshots and shorthand notes, we may, without intending to deprecate it, call our present convention the eavesdropping convention, the convention which charges playgoers half a crown or half a guinea for pretending to remove the fourth wall and pretending to give them an opportunity of spying upon actual life and seeing everything just as it happens. Under what Mr. Jones has happily defined as the eavesdropping convention, we have brought nature nearer to the eye than ever before and have vastly magnified the observation of details of daily life. But at the same time, we should not neglect to notice that in doing so we have narrowed the field of vision and have sacrificed that feeling of remoteness which is inseparable from any contemplation of the vast. To offset the gain that is derivable from intimate particularity of observation, we have lost, as Mr. Jones remarks in another passage of the same essay, the crowded and varied bustle of Shakespeare, the busy hum that comes from his universal workshop, the drums and tramplings of his hundred legions, the long resounding march of assembled humanity as it troops across his boards. Though we may feel that the welfare of the human race requires that some people should be thin and others should be stout, it would be unreasonable for us to ask an individual to grow both thin and stout at the same time. Similarly, it would be unreasonable for us to expect within a single period an equally remarkable development of intensive and extensive artistry. It has taken 30 years for the drama to develop its present high efficiency of intensive art. It would be unwise to undervalue this development, which has resulted in the production of many plays which exhibit an extremely high order of intelligence. And we should not be surprised to note the inevitable corollary that during the same period the excluded method of extensive art has shown no development of any great importance. But the drama is a democratic art, whose destinies are guided by an almost universal suffrage. And we learn from the history of all democracies that, after a single party has long remained in power, the public is certain, sooner or later, to elect the opposition party into office, in order to give it a chance to show what it can do. The drama cannot remain forever in the hands of the great intensive artists of the present age. Sooner or later, the public will demand, if only for the sake of change, a return to the methods of extensive art. The moment for such a revolution is the moment when the party in power has finally achieved the utmost of which it is capable. 
When one method has attained its climax, the only hope of progress lies in changing to another method. There are many indications that the intensive drama of the present period has already reached its zenith and has thereby destroyed its possibilities of future service. For 30 years, as the eavesdropping convention has been more and more improved, the drama has brought us nearer and nearer to actuality, with the constantly increasing magnifying of details and consequent limitation of the field of vision. This development can go no further. Such plays as The Madras House and The Hindle Wakes and The Rutherford and Son have brought the observer so close to actuality that any further development along the same lines would result in an annihilation of the difference that separates art from life. But this annihilation would be a reductio ad absurdum. The drama would retain no reason for existence if it should sacrifice its license of being different from life. In the face of such a danger, there is only one thing to be done. We must at once increase the field of vision by removing the drama to a greater remoteness from actuality. When the realists threaten to cut their own throats, it is time for us to turn the government over to the romantics. When prose has done its best, it is time for us to call for poetry. And when the intensive drama can proceed no further with its program without destroying its own excuse for being, the time has come to use the theater once again for the expression of extensive art. 3. But romance and poetry have been so long excluded from the drama that it will be necessary to invent a new type of play in order to domesticate them in the theater once again. If Shakespeare were alive today, he would find the intensive formula of Pinero unsuited to the exhibition of his own extensive art. The eavesdropping convention has admirably served the purpose of our realistic and prosaic writers, but we cannot impose this convention forever on the writers of a newer age. What must be the formula for the drama of tomorrow? What Ibsen called the law of change indicates that this new drama will be extensive in method, romantic in mood, and poetic in tone. But in what particulars must we revise the technique of the present in order to prepare the theater for this inevitable change? First of all, it is obvious that the next generation of dramatic artists will require a freer handling of the categories of time and place than is possible in the contemporary drama. To the intensive playwright, it is clearly an advantage to crowd his narrative into no more than two or three or four distinct pigeonholes of place and time. But even in the period when intensive art is dominant, it is manifestly unfair to impose the same formula upon playwrights whose natural tendency is towards a more extensive exercise of art. It is unfair to ask the poetic and romantic Maurice Maeterlinck to cut his place according to a pattern that has deliberately been developed to suit the very different requirements of the prosaic and realistic Mr. Stanley Houghton. 
we need a new dramatic pattern which shall afford a freer scope to the beating of the large and luminous wings of the extensive artist if shakespeare could arrange his narrative in twenty or even forty scenes instead of two or three why it is impossible for us to do so at the present day the answer is not theoretical but practical the elizabethans used no scenery in the modern sense and they could therefore change their time and place by the simple expedient of emptying the stage and repeopling it with other actors this expedient is denied us by the incubus of modern scenery we must never for a moment allow ourselves to forget that the development of modern scenery is the one scientific factor which has made possible the recent wonderful development and impressive triumph of intensive drama but we must notice on the other hand that this same remarkable invention is the sole factor that impedes us from employing the more extensive narrative convention of the elizabethan stage and exhibiting the long resounding march of assembled humanity as it troops across the boards a person who although his youth was poor has learned to live on twenty thousand dollars a year can never easily return to an expenditure of only two thousand dollars a year our public has grown so used to the trappings and the suits of scenery that we could not now expect it to accept the sinless stage of shakespeare even for the purpose of allowing to a poet a less impeded flow of narrative but the use of such scenery as is commonly employed at present entirely prevents the playwright from adopting the remote and easy attitude towards time and place which was accorded to elizabethan authors this attitude is prevented by two practical considerations in the first place it takes so long to set and change a modern scene that a narrative in twenty units would require at least four hours for its presentation with lapses between the units so protracted that the audience would wander away from the mood of the story and in the second place the expanse of twenty modern stage sets would ruin the manager of any play when the development of art is prevented by such practical impediments as these there is only one thing for the artist to do he must demand new practical inventions to remove the obstacles that have been set athwart his path obviously the two inventions that are needed in order that the way may be cleared for the new development of extensive drama are first a means of shifting scenery in a few seconds and second a means of manufacturing scenery at a very small expense until these two inventions are perfected romance and poetry must continue to endure a fruitless exile from the modern stage but although most of our american managers seem as yet unaware of the revolutions that have silently been taking place in europe both of these inventions have been already made and are being rapidly perfected in the futuristic theatres of the world the first problem has been solved in germany by the simple and practical invention of the revolving stage 
By this invention, a revolving circle is inscribed within the square platform that is disclosed by the proscenium. This circle will accommodate three settings at the same time. After the first set has been used, the stage may be revolved in a few seconds to disclose the second set. And while this is being employed by the actors, a new scene may be erected in place of the one that has been discarded. This invention has supplanted the earlier type of movable stage, which is still in use at the Hofburg Theater in Vienna. The method of this mechanism was to build the stage in a series of platforms, which could be raised or lowered on elevators. A stage of this type was erected many years ago in the old Madison Square Theater in New York. But it is an evidence of the backwardness of the theater in America today that only two stages of the new revolving type have been installed and yet in the theaters of this country, and that both of these, namely the stage of the Century Theater and that of the Little Theater, have been erected by a single forward-looking manager, Mr. Winthrop Ames. But in time this new invention is sure to be adopted in our other theaters, and thereafter it will be possible for us to change the scene of any play without even lowering the curtain. After a few seconds of darkness, the lights may be turned up to disclose a new vista of the panoramic world. The second problem, the problem of expanse, has also been successfully attacked by such inventors as Mr. Gordon Craig and Professor Max Reinhardt. It is necessary to build solid and expansive scenery for the exhibition of realistic and intensive plays. But this necessity need no longer be imposed upon the authors of extensive and poetic dramas. For the purpose of impressionistic art, impressionistic scenery is adequate. If the scene be imagined in some forest of Arden, an artistic hanging of green curtains will mean more to the imagination than any rotund and heavy forestry of canvas trees. And a subtler atmosphere may be suggested by the deft manipulation of electric lights than by the definite delineation of a myriad details. In Moscow, Mr. Craig has recently produced Hamlet with a series of simple screens which are differently lighted to suggest the changing moods of its variable drift of narrative. And in his decorative pantomime of Sumerun, Professor Reinhardt has shown us how simply it is possible to spare expanse in setting forth a story in a dozen scenes by the employment of flat backgrounds washed in with primary colors and the abolition of the superfluous element of linear perspective. 4. In view of such inventions as these, the critic cannot be accused of a lack of scientific basis in asking for a new type of play to relieve the monotony of the contemporary theatre. It is no longer unpractical to plead with our poetic and romantic authors to construct new narratives in twenty scenes instead of two or three in the endeavour to recapture the busy hum 
of Shakespeare's Universal Workshop. Our public has been trained so long to look at life only through the small end of its opera glasses that it has grown to neglect the interest that is derivable from looking through the other and the larger end. In 30 years, the new intensive artistry have been developed to such perfection in the theater that the public has almost forgotten the foregone delights of the extensive drama. But a younger and a freer generation is now knocking at the door. The intensive drama has already done its best, and the time has come for a return to the methods of extensive art. The drama of the present is so excellent, according to its method, that the drama of the future must be different. The new type of play for which the critic is pleading in the present paper will be not analytic, but synthetic. It will not narrow the field of vision to set life apparently under the nose, but will remove life to an enchantment of remoteness in order to enlarge the field of vision. It will not content itself with the analysis of character within constricted bounds of time and place, but will attempt to represent the logical development of character in many places and through many times. It will not be realistic but impressionistic, not prosaic but poetic. It will exhibit more the martial march of Marlowe than the minute and mincing gait of Stanley Houghton. This new type of play will assuredly be written by the poets of the rising generation. How long, one wonders, will the public have to wait until it achieves a conquest of the theater? End of chapter 6